28, the last chapter of Matthew. And then uh, if you can go to have a seat and we will begin to read God's holy word together. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18 and going through the end of verse 20. A very well-known verse. Let's give attention to God's Word together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you so loved the world, you so loved us, that you sent your only Son to redeem a people to yourself. God, you called us from a meaningless existence on our own apart from you. And you you called us to a greater purpose. That's your purpose. God, you called us to participate together with the mission that Jesus, you have already completed. Jesus, your work is, is already done. And yet, you call us to participate together in the furtherance of the gospel. You call us to the great privilege of not only being disciples, not only abiding in you and growing in you, but Jesus, thank you that you call us to to participate together in the thing that makes the most difference in the world and in our lives. You let us participate together in sharing the good news of the gospel. And somehow, Lord, you use us to communicate your gospel, and so to change lives through the power of your gospel. God, thank you for this privilege. Lord, I pray that this very familiar verse would not be familiar to us this morning. I pray that this very familiar verse would come alive to us, that we would hear you speaking to us in our hearts and our minds. Would you open up our eyes to be able to see you, to behold you. Lord, would you help us catch a passion for your mission? We pray this in your name. Amen. When when the mission is unclear, when the mission is unclear, when, when motivation is not clear, when targets, when goals are not clear, It makes a mission impossible to carry out. We've been seeing on television over the last few years or so, many different missions be summarized. That Missions that were carried out by elite forces, like the Navy SEALs and other groups. 
And, and they had very specific directives. They had a very specific, very clear mission. And they were given a strategic plan for how to carry out those missions. But could you imagine if those missions were unclear? If they had no strategic plans to carry them out? As I was looking at this passage, I'd have to agree with many commentators who would say that, that we are suffering as a, as a church. We are suffering, suffering as Christians from, from mission creep. We, we are suffering from mission creep of, of losing focus, losing sight of what our clear mission is. We've, we've lost sight of what's really clear for the church today. And the church has been led to think through many different popular books and authors and speakers out there today, that all these good things are our mission, but they're not. We've been led to think that we have many other purposes in our life, that that's our mission. The church is suffering from mission creep. It's as if we've been led to think that all the things that are good things that we can do while on the mission are actually the mission itself. It would be like an army that's marching to a distant battlefield where there are orphans being held hostage by an enemy group. And it would be like that army marching on their mission to to deliver those orphans, to free them, to do battle, to, to free the orphans. And bring them back home to safety. It would be like that army then getting sidetracked on the way. And starting to build villages. Starting to do good things. But things that are not its primary mission. Starting to maybe build roads or improve the environment around them. It would be an utter failure if the army began to carry out all kinds of of good works along the way. Build roads and and homes and beautify the landscape. But they forgot what they're supposed to do. And as a consequence, the orphans would be put in danger or worse. Now, it would be great if if armies were transferred to to peaceful forces and were doing those things. But if they lost sight of of their purpose, of their mission... And they started getting distracted by all these other good things. They'd be a failure. The church today, I believe, suffers at times from mission creep. We get distracted by lots of really good things. We get distracted by programs, by lots of good activity and work. We get distracted by lots of things, but at times we lose sight of what our primary mission that we're called to do At times we become enamored with the path that we're on. We forget that we're supposed to go somewhere. The church at times has gotten sidetracked into focusing on good things. None of those things are bad things. Like enhancing the culture. What a good thing that can be. But we've gotten sidetracked at times to thinking that that's the primary mission. And no, it's not the primary mission. It's things we can do along the way to fulfilling the mission. But that's not the primary mission. We shouldn't confuse it. It doesn't mean that Christians are called to practice asceticism. That's not what we're called to do. I'm not advocating leaving the culture behind or or being a part of it either. To do that would be to leave the command to be in the world but not of it. We are indeed to be in the world but not of it. So let me ask you church this morning, is, is the mission of the church just to be kind? 
Is it just practicing random acts of kindness? Is that alone the mission? Well, those things aren't bad. Is it to be like the culture and be a part of the culture so as perhaps to win the culture by identifying with the culture? Or are we called on the other extreme to be so separate, so different, so apart from the culture that we form our own Christian communities and we end up not really interacting with unbelievers in any significant way? You see, those are two extremes that we can be led to. Are they being so part of the culture that it drives us and it becomes what we think is going to fulfill the mission and we get sidetracked? Or saying, you know, we need to segregate ourselves so much that we get isolated in these little cozy Christian communities and we never speak with unbelievers. I'd posit that neither of those things is our mission. Those are relevant, relevant questions for us today. And that's really the, the environment that we live in. We have people on all sides saying that we need to embrace the culture, become part of it, understand it. So that we can then speak to it. Well, there's some good things to learn from that. We have other people who say we need to be separate completely and not be like the culture in any way. Well, there's some good things to learn about holiness there. But both can get sidetracked. Scripture calls us to be in the culture, to, to pursue and use our gifts in the context of the earthly kingdom that we live in. But not to lose sight of the fact that we're called to be emissaries. We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be representatives of another kingdom. We're not to be confused with the culture around us. In fact, Scripture calls us strangers and aliens. We're not of this world. See, but remember there was this old Petra song that I used to go, we are strangers, we are aliens, we're not of this world. It was a really bad song, but I loved it as a kid. It was, it was great. <laughs> I don't know why they just popped in my head. I, I should ignore things that are not in my notes. Um, we, <laughs> But at the same time that we're called to be strangers and aliens and we're not of this world. We're called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We're also called to preach the gospel. And in, and in fact, in, in Romans, in Romans 10.4, it says, But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear? Without someone preaching. And how are they to preach? Unless they are sent. As it is written. How beautiful are the feet. Of those who preach. The good news. We're called to be in the world. But to be salt. We're called to have a distinct taste. And not lose the distinctiveness of. Who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. And and lose our taste in in the In the meanwhile, we're called to live in this dark world, but to be light. Not hide our light, but to let it shine. To preach the good news so that people everywhere can see and hear the truth of the gospel. Everything we are about is to be about one goal. To be disciples of Jesus in all that we do. And to live out our lives abiding in Him. Growing in Him. Trusting in His authority. Trusting in His dominion. And then sharing Jesus. Living like Him. With our mouths actually talking and teaching about Jesus. All the while relying on Jesus. Here's the key. Relying on Jesus. To be the one. To do the work. To be with us. Wherever we go. So what is our mission about as a church? 
We've been focusing on for these last couple weeks, and this is the third and final part of our series this morning about our mission together as a church. We've been trying to, to hone it down, to simplify it, to be crystal clear. We're, we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We're called to grow as disciples, and we're called to make disciples. So today is what we, we delve into what's referred to as the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. We're just going to unpack that simple truth. We're going to focus in on, on making disciples and talk about what that looks like and what it means. And overall, the main idea we're going to draw out of the text today is that, is that Jesus calls us. Jesus calls us. Do you feel the call of Jesus? Do you, are you hearing personally the call of Jesus on your own life? Jesus calls us and enables us to follow him in the mission of making disciples. Jesus calls us and enables us to follow him in the mission we have of making disciples. It's a very, very short passage. I'm sure if you have been in a church for more than a year or two, you probably heard this passage many times already. It can be very familiar. But I want to commit to looking at it today anew as if we'd never heard it before. You see that I think sometimes we fail to start where the Great Commission starts. We fail to start with the fact that it doesn't begin with go therefore. That's not where the Great Commission begins. It is, the Great Commission is not go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's, that's not where the Great Commission begins. It doesn't start there. It starts with, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis for the Great Commission. That's the foundation for the Great Commission. You see, the mission is grounded in his completed mission. And if we lose sight of that, if we, if we just take the go therefore and we begin with that, then we'll miss the point entirely. We'll miss the point of that our mission is grounded in his completed mission. The mission is grounded in his completed mission. You see, he's already done what he needed to do to enable us to go therefore. And he has all authority. And in his mission, he's already carried out this mission. He's been granted all authority because his mission has been completed here on this earth. And he's been granted all authority because of that. And because he has all authority, he gives us the authority to go. The therefore in the sentence is always pointing back to something else. It points to the first part. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. So what, what authority is Jesus talking about? If you think about it, he's really saying something mind-blowing, this one little statement. He's saying that he has all the authority of heaven. He has all the authority of heaven. He's saying that he has the authority of God Almighty. He has the authority of the creator of the entire universe. And of all existence, Jesus has the authority as the creator of the universe. And he's over all existence. Do you believe that? Is that what you're trusting in? Is that where you start with when you're thinking of the Great Commission? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's been given power and dominion over this physical earth, over the land, over the sea, over the, over the mountains, over tsunamis, over earthquakes, over floods, over crops and seasons and plants and trees and 
creatures in the sea and on the land. All authority has been given to him on heaven, in heaven and on earth. He has authority over powers and principalities, over evil. And Jesus has authority over people of every walk of life. His mission here on earth showed those things. It proved that he had all authority. He was not limited in any way. Jesus has all authority. Do you limit Jesus? You know, you wouldn't do that practically in your head. You wouldn't think, yeah, I'm limiting Jesus. But no, but functionally at times we can limit Jesus to having limited authority. That no, certainly Jesus doesn't have authority over people or circumstances or floods or evil. Don't limit Jesus. He has authority over everything. At times we can start the Great Commission without realizing that, no, we actually have a right to share the gospel. Do you, you have a right to share the gospel with unbelievers because he's been given all authority? Because he has the right to command you to do that. And because he's delegated that to you, you have a right and a privilege, not just a command, but a right and a privilege to go and preach the gospel. You ever feel like you don't have, a, have the right, like you don't have the authority to speak up or say something or share the gospel because maybe I really don't know better. Maybe I really don't, maybe this isn't really the truth. Well, Jesus says no. I've been reading through the Bible this year and since January, uh, reading different passages in the Bible every morning. I'm reading from four different places normally. And right now, one of the passages over the last week, each day has been in the book of Ezra. And if you've ever read the story of Ezra, it tells of how King Cyrus, God moved on his heart. This is the king of Persia who had brought the people of Israel into captivity. And King, king Cyrus was stirred up by God to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed when, when Nebuchadnezzar had taken the people of Israel into captivity. And King Cyrus, this mighty Persian emperor, he decrees in Ezra, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You would not expect a Persian emperor to be speaking of the Lord of all, the, the true Lord and Savior, the, the Lord, the King of the Jews. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that. And yet the book of Ezra, then it tells how Cyrus gave Zerubbabel, along with Yeshua and Nehemiah and a bunch of other people, a commission to rebuild the temple. And they faced co constant opposition over three different reigns. They, they faced constant opposition to the reign of Cyrus and Darius. And finally, it talks about how in the reign of King Artaxerxes, how they challenged the right. They challenged the right of Zerubbabel to, to, to rebuild the temple. And so they sent word to King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes, he, he makes a, a new decree again. And he says, he, he in effect gives them a commission to rebuild the temple. He gives them authority. And King Artaxerxes at that time, he, he would have been the ruler of, of the entire Persian Empire. The most powerful empire in that day. He had all the authority to be able to do that. And he backed up that authority with... With proof, he backed up that authority saying that if they, if they didn't obey his words, that he'd actually kill them and impale them and all these nasty things he would do to them. He had all the authority to command them, to commission them to rebuild the temple. 
And after he did that, after he decreed that, after the king who had authority decreed that Ezra was to, uh, that, that, that the people in the book of Ezra were to rebuild the temple, they did so and they were completely unharmed and the temple was rebuilt. Jesus has more authority than any earthly ruler. Jesus has been given all authority, not just in Jerusalem, but in, in, in everything. No matter what threats come against you, no matter what opposition you face, no matter how many times you're opposed over how many years, Jesus has decreed that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, so go. Because he has authority, we have a commission. And we're able to carry that commission out. And we have a right and a privilege to carry that commission out as well. Jesus came to redeem a people to himself ultimately and finally. And the entire account of Jesus... In the New Testament, his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, they prove that he's been given all authority over heaven and over earth. His mission was completed. He ascended and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning forevermore. He was the first man. We've been, as a church, going through the the book of, of Genesis and seeing how time after time man failed. Time after time man fails. Adam failed and everyone after him just continues to fail. And then the rest of the Old Testament, it talks of how Israel was given a covenant and yet Israel time after time failed and failed and failed and really they had no hope. No hope for redemption in the covenant because they had broken the covenant. And, and on the basis of the covenant alone they had no hope for Restoration, no hope for redemption, no hope to be brought back. Hebrews tells us that although Jesus was God, he earned the right to be called the Son of God through his obedience. You see, where, where Israel had failed, where mankind had failed, Jesus did not fail in any way. He perfectly obeyed, he perfectly kept the covenant in every way. Because of that, Jesus has been given all authority. That's who we're trusting in as we go. That's who we're resting in. That's what our mission is grounded in. Our mission is grounded in the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He proved he had power over over temptation. He proved he could resist every temptation that Satan threw at him. And and while he walked here on this earth, he proved that he had authority over matter itself. And he created bread when he was only given a few loaves of bread. He created something from nothing. He proved he had all authority over matter. He had all authority over nature. He spoke to a storm. How many of you have done that? Spoke to a storm and it stops. Well, it doesn't happen. Only he alone has all authority. He spoke to the storm, it stopped, and the sea was made as glass. He had power over nature. He's proven he has power and authority over the spiritual realm. He cast out demons with a word. He proved he has power over humanity to heal, to create. He he took an ear that had been cut off and he put it back on Talk about supernatural super glue. And, and he put it, he created where there was no flesh. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He opened deaf ears. He made new flesh where it had been eaten away with leprosy. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And then he kept the covenant and he suffered the punishment of the covenant. He died in our place. He took the righteous wrath of God that we deserved. He stood in our place, condemned for us. And then he rose victorious, proving that he completed his mission. He defeated Satan, the ruler of the world. He's broken the bonds of death and hell in the grave. This is what it means when it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Doesn't that excite you to know that this is the Jesus who speaks to each and every one of us. This is the Jesus who's commissioned each and every one of you who has placed their faith in Jesus. He reigns victorious. He's inaugurated his new kingdom. And he is in the process of bringing all things into subjection to himself until one day all things will be made new. This is where the Great Commission starts. With his authority. We have a mission. We can have confidence in our going. Because he's completed his mission. And the second point that he gives us from this passage, it's... it's that the mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. It's directly from the scripture. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. What is this going though? At times we get confused. Is it trying to bring the kingdom about through earthly powers and means? His disciples thought that, didn't they? They were confused. You know, up until right before he ascended, what was the last thing they asked him? Jesus is, is now, now he had already, he had already been resurrected. He'd already been with them for many, many days. He'd shown many signs and wonders and taught them lots of things. And, and then they're still not getting it. They're still thinking that somehow he's going to bring his kingdom about through earthly means. So the last question they ask him is, Jesus, are you now going to restore your, your kingdom here on earth? Is that what it's all about? Is it this earthly kingdom? Is that how you're going to bring it about? Or is it like the emperor of Rome, Constantine? He tried to bring about Christendom. Or perhaps as Pope Urban II in 1095 BC, uh, AD, what he did, he, he inspired the awful crusades that wrongly spilled the blood of many in the name of Christ. Is that what it means to, to go and make disciples of all nations? Is it trying to bring his rule and his reign to the government and the schools and social structures? Are we to perhaps do as Jesus said and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and participate in this earthly realm in light of the fact that he's the ruler of all and be salt and light but not confuse this earthly realm with our true home? If that's the case, then how do we go there for amidst our our neighbors who are, are either atheist or Catholic or Muslim or Hindu or culturally Christian in name alone but not in life. How do we go there for in the midst of those things? Because that's where we live, isn't it? We live in a pluralistic society. Or is this going, is it, is it the opposite of that? And is it a cultural transformation through the arts, through random acts of kindness, through being nice and doing good deeds? Is that what Jesus is talking about? What did Jesus mean when he was referring to those who did not believe as being condemned already? 
What about our friends and co-workers and classmates who say that they have their own way to heaven? I know that's true for me. What about the fact that John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. What about all of our nice friends and our nice family and who we love and, we, and they claim that Christians are arrogant and elitist. What do we do about them? What did Jesus mean in Matthew? When Jesus in Matthew 10.34 says, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. What? For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What did he mean? I think the early church knew. I don't think they were confused when one family member turned another family member into the authorities and they were put to death because of that. When people had to choose between staying with their family and loving them or loving Jesus and being put to death. I think they understood what it meant. I think the countless martyrs whose blood cries out to God. I think they understood the call to sacrifice, the call to stand out, the call to go, meant to get out of themselves, to be different, to be distinct, to be loving and humble, but be real and risk the consequences of sharing the gospel. When Jesus explained that because all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, so his disciples were to go therefore, there seemed to be an urgency, didn't there? There seems to be an urgency in this passage as we read it again today. But let me ask you, does that urgency exist for you? Is this, in this going, what can we expect to encounter? What do we expect to encounter as we go? Well, what we can expect is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not about our ability, our authority. It's not about even our craftiness of speech or having memorized the Romans road. All those things may be helpful, but it's about the power of God for salvation, which is the gospel. You see, being mission-driven, it means being gospel-driven. We're not talking about... a another purpose driving our life. Talk about this mission, the gospel mission driving our life. We're not called to save anyone. Don't be confused. There's only one who can save and it's, it's God alone. But he uses our feeble gospel telling to powerfully save and to rescue people. And as we go, we are going in his power. As we go, we're going therefore in his authority. And we can compel people to repent and to turn to Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Making disciples doesn't stop at sharing the gospel. We aren't called to help rescue orphans only to leave them hungry and unprotected not knowing how to feed for themselves or grow up in Christ. What does it mean to make disciples really then? It means making fellow learners. It means, it means taking people who are without God, who did not call God 
Abba Father, who now, because of the power of the gospel, have been made alive and call God Daddy God, taking people who were new in their faith, childlike, and instructing them and helping them, training them, discipling them. It means making fellow learners, telling people about Jesus, helping them see Jesus, knowing how to follow in themselves. And then, and then he talks about all nations in this passage as well. So what in the world does going to all nations look like? Because we, we've been told for the last hundred years or so that going into all the world, it looks like that. At, that I, I remember going to a conference back in, I guess it was 93. It was called World Mandate. And it was a missions conference. And it was, it was well-intended, well-meaning folks. And they were saying, if God is, is, if you've not heard a specific word that God's calling you to stay where you're at, then you should be going to other nations. You should be leaving your home, packing your bags, and being a missionary. Great idea. But I think they missed that we're one of those all nations. That we have all nations around us. They missed the idea that, you know what, it's, it's actually not a Christian, an American gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're called to be salt and light where God's planted us. That doesn't mean you're not called to go and be missionaries. I'm not anti-missionary. But I think the default is, God, how are you right now? Because it's easier to go somewhere else and share the gospel with people who don't look like you, don't act like you, don't talk like you. And you know what? You're not going to see them in a few, in a few weeks because they're not going to make fun of you. They may make fun of you right now, but no big deal because you can do it for Jesus overseas. But doing it in your life every day is much harder. And that's what we're called to do, to go to the nations all around us. We're living in one of the most unreached nations now. It's funny, the gospel has been spread throughout the United States, and yet we're really a post-Christian nation. We're living in the midst of people whose hearts are far from God. It's a pluralistic pagan land. It's desperately in need of a Savior. Our salvation is not to be found in politics either. It's to be found in Jesus, redeeming and rescuing people from their sins. And all around us, people all around you are hurting and trapped in their sins. They're on a highway to hell. Sorry if I put that crazy song in your head. That's not a good one to be there. We have a call. We have a privilege. We have a commission to go to those people around us. For those of us with children, the first place we need to go is our own children. For all of us, we're called to go to our friends, our relatives, our, our nice co-workers, our humanitarian classmates, our, our neighbors who are all happily headed to hell oblivious of the eternal consequences, eternal punishment that they face. We're all called to carry the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to them and His authority. And the third point is that Jesus gave us a strategic plan for the mission. You see, He didn't just have all authority and tell us to go to make disciples of all nations and then leave it there. That's not the entire Great Commission either. He then gives us the strategic plan to be able to carry out that Great Commission. You know, I, I used to be in business and was a part of businesses that succeeded because they had a clearly outlined strategic plan for how they would be successful and how they would meet their goals and, and how they would pursue what they saw. 
as their mission is. Because strategic plans, they enable the business to stay focused and, and make sure that they're working to deliver against targeted objectives in our personal life. You'll find that planning is important. Maybe you haven't found that yet. And, and hopefully, Lord willing, you'll, you'll, you'll discover that, that planning is important personally as well. And if we're going to accomplish any goals, and most of us have learned that instead of actually hindering you from getting things done, planning enables you to be more free to get things done. In the workplace, most people eventually learn that to be successful in your job, you kind of need to have a plan, and that lack of planning can get you into all kinds of trouble. Eventually, you'll get fired for it. Unless you're working in some day-to-day job, you're going to need to have a plan of some sort. In our homes at times, we try to get away with having no plans and no boundaries around our time and no goals, and we'll find that flying by the seat of our pants, it's, it's not going to leave you flying. It's going to leave you firmly grounded with your pants in the dust. <laughs> and we won't end up making any progress. We're going to feel like we're continually spinning our wheels. And if we've been called to raise up our children in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it, but yet we have no God-given plan or strategy, we're just going to be in the mode of always reacting and responding to our children instead of discipling them. If God had told Noah, hey, Noah, I I want you to build this thing called an ark. Go do it. (laughs) He'd be a little mystified. What's an ark? What's rain? What? How? Um, I I don't understand. I've never done that before. I have no idea how to do that, how to approach that. Noah would not have been able to do that. But God doesn't give his people something to do and leave us alone. Whenever God gives us something to do, he gives us the instruction to do it. And he gives us the tools we need to get the job done. And with this great commission that we have, Jesus didn't just give us a commandment to go and make disciples. And he didn't leave us alone to figure it out for ourselves. He, he gave us... A strategic plan to carry out our mission of making disciples. Now, that's not every detail about how do I share the gospel with this person, that person, this person. What does it look like exactly? But then, no, he, he expects us to step out in faith and follow him. But he, he gives us a strategic plan. And look down at verses 19 and 20. Here it is. The strategic plan that Jesus has given us all in verses 19 and 20. All authority has been given to Jesus. Because of that, we're to go and make disciples of all nations, here's the plan. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This, this is the strategic plan for how we are to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I think at times we can come up with our own plans for making disciples. We can come up with our own means, and pretty soon we can go way off mission. The problem with the church, it's not as much that we're not active. Now, sometimes it is true that we can be lazy and, and not be active doing things. We can be hypocritical, but that's not the primary problem. The primary problem is that there is a whole lot of us who are very much like Martha. We're very engaged. We're very industrious with all sorts of activities in the church and in Christianity today. We've got programs for this and programs for that. We've got all these activities and means and busyness. 
outreach programs, social programs, mission boards. None of those things are bad necessarily. But all that activity, it can, it can distract us from what we've been called to do. It can distract us from the strategic plan that Jesus gave us to carry out. And we're in danger of not fulfilling our mission as a church and as Christianity. We're, we're, we personally are in danger of not following the Great Commission. Not because we're not busy enough. Instead, the church is not Christian enough in its outreach or ministry. We can bury the message of Jesus deep inside programs and strategies of our own making. Christians are participate, to participate in the world of salt and light and, and to seek to honor God in everything that we do, no matter what our employment. And we are absolutely called to, to love and honor Him and to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. But it's different than the great commission that we've been given. What's going to truly transform the lives of the people in the world who are lost is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could say that he was eager to come and preach the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. It says in Romans 1.16 because he knew that the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not programs, it's not methodologies. The gospel alone is the power of God for everyone who believes. The Great Commission, it actually requires that we speak and baptize and tell others and teach others about Jesus. It's not just showing Christ in our actions and sometimes use words. No, that's not helpful and that's not the, that's not the gospel. Yeah, we're called to, to love those around us, but we're called to preach the gospel. To go and to make disciples, to teach, to baptize. And these strategic plans, they, they imply a few things. They imply the context of a local church. They imply the context of a local church body because gospel proclamation and baptism and teaching, and they're all aspects of the local church in the New Testament. You see in the book of Acts, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gathered together for teaching, for fellowship, for the Lord's Supper, for prayer. God gathered them into a church community. It says in Acts 2.47 that the Lord added daily to their number. And then in Acts 16.5 it says the churches were strengthened in the faith. They increased in numbers daily. love how Michael Horton summarizes in his book entitled Gospel, The Gospel Commission. He says, preaching the gospel, baptizing and teaching everything, the appointed tools for making disciples. The appointed tools for making disciples are not just things we do as the entrance to the Christian life. They're not necessary merely for conversion or planting a church. They are the perpetual means. So, what are the things? Like preaching the gospel, baptizing and teaching everything is a perpetual means through which disciples and disciple makers are made over the long haul. This is the ministry that Christ has appointed for our home church as well as for our missionaries in a foreign field. Personal relationship with Jesus and church membership. When you are joined to other believers and can learn to be discipled in the ups and downs and ins and outs of life, it goes hand in hand with the church. 
growth through baptism and sharing the Lord's Supper, teaching the Word, and living life in community, and learning how to observe all of Jesus' commandments. They're seen as the normative means of forming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism in the New Testament in the early church was identifying yourself publicly as a Christian, but not publicly alone, publicly in the context of, of a body of believers. And God promises to bless the preaching and teaching of his word. And he says that he will not return void to him. It will always bear fruit. And then we as individual disciples, we're called to teach as well, aren't we? Parents. If you are a parent, you are directly called to teach your children. You have a commission to teach your children all about Jesus, to teach him all about Jesus, because what Jesus commanded us to do. I, I love the story of Timothy, the account that we have of Timothy. He learned about Jesus. He came to faith in Jesus Christ through his mom, through his grandmother. Maybe you're a single mom, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can do this. We don't really see Timothy's father in the picture, maybe because he wasn't alive. But his mom influenced him, and his grandmother influenced him. He was catechized really through his mother and his grandmother. Our, our homes are the closest mission fields for many of us. We don't have to leave our door to enter the mission field. I've got several unbelievers in my house that I'm trying to preach the gospel to every day. When I discipline them, I'm explaining and trying to connect that with how we deserve consequences from God, but Jesus provided a way that, that we, can, we can not have eternal consequences, that we can be forgiven when we sin because whenever we disobey mom and dad's command, we're disobeying God as well. And when we disobey God, we're storing up wrath, but God's made a, a way to save us through Jesus Christ. We have a mission field at home. Parents, don't be afraid to go back to the early means that the church found and that later on the church used. Things like the Westminster Catechism and catechizing your sounds is a huge word. They have this one little shorter Westminster Catechism for kids. It's a great little resource to, to train up your children, to, to teach them of all that Jesus commanded them. We can take advantage of free resources like, like Piper. He's got a book out there called What Jesus Demands of This World. And and it's just the teachings of Jesus applied to life. It's exactly what this was. It's, he, he had a burden to take this command of Jesus, to teach him all that commanded you. So he took those all in Jesus' commandments, put them into a book, and it's actually free online. You can download it. There's a study guide for it as well. In, in fact, I think that a few of the young ladies are going to be starting a Bible, a book study based on that book. And for those who are younger ladies, 18 to 35, wondering, what about us? Well, uh, there's going to be a book study for you as well, and it's going to be around that. What Jesus demands this world. Learning to follow all that Jesus commanded. As, as a church, uh, there's a book that I'm going to encourage all of you to buy. It's, it's, called, it's called Love or Die. We've, we've got a, about 75 copies back at the book table. And um, I've, I've made sure that all the character leaders already have a copy of this. It's a, it's a very short book. It's, it's six chapters alone. And it's got study guides at the back with questions so you don't have to think about them. And um, you don't have to wonder, like, uh, how do I apply this? Um, you can get together with a few other Christians if, if you're not doing it in your care group or a few other men or a few other women and get together and, and, and talk about what, what does it look like for when Jesus commanded us to love one another? What does that look like? How do we apply that today to our lives?
And by the way, if you can't afford that, it's $7 the bookstore. If you can't afford that, please just let the people at the bookstore know and we'll give that to you. We want you to have good resources to be able to understand how to grow as disciples, to, to learn how to apply all that Jesus commanded us to observe. There's another book, actually, that uh, we've got a bunch of copies back in the bookstore as well. It's uh, another John Piper book. It's called This Momentary Marriage. Maybe you know a young married couple or an older married couple who needs to grow as disciples and, and learning to observe all that Jesus commanded and applying it to marriage. And um, This is an excellent resource for you. And by the way, I hope you know we don't make any money at our, at our book table back there that um, we actually lose money. I'm not hawking things because somehow we're making money off of This is not like the Christian infomercial. The reason... Um, <laughs> Yes, for three easy payments. Uh, no, that's not what this is. I'm trying to encourage us to be learners. You see, to be a disciple means to be a learner. So we want to provide resources for you. And we want to take a loss in the bookstore. And we're doing that. Um, so we can be learners. And we want, to, we want to teach those who are in the church, who are new to the faith. But not only that, we want to share the gospel, make disciples of those currently outside of the church too. Don't limit yourself to just making disciples inside of the church. Go and... Outside of the church. If I'm, if I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm meant to be an ambassador. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador. You have a commission. You're an emissary. You're an ambassador. We have to ask ourselves, are we on Christ's mission as his ambassador? Or are we on our own mission? I, lo- I love another quote from... Uh, Michael Horton, he says, Ambassadors do not create their own policies, usurping the role of their head of state. They do not negotiate the terms of the peace treaty, but communicate them. They are under orders. Ambassadors aren't merely private individuals who share their personal beliefs and experiences with others. They do not send themselves, but are officially commissioned and sent Christ still sends his ambassadors. If you're a disciple, you're his ambassadors. And Christ is still sending you out on his mission, proclaiming the good news, baptizing and teaching everything that Christ commanded. Kids and young people, if you're a Christian, you're called to be ambassadors in your school and in your neighborhood. If you're on a sports team to tell them about Jesus and the good news, college students... You've been given a commission to share the gospel, to make disciples, to teach people the truth about who Jesus is and the very moral, morally relativistic environment of your school. You're meant to stand up and say, no, all roads don't lead to, Jesus, to God. What you think is good for you is not good at all. Let me tell you about the good news. Moms who work in the home, you can share the gospel and make disciples not only of your kids, but, but also of your neighbors and other people you come in contact with on a regular basis. Men and women, moms and dads in the workplace. You've been called to be salt and light in the marketplace. We've been sent. We've been given a strategic plan. So let's go and share the gospel. But this going, it, it really requires some effort. It requires some thought. It requires that we think about it. It does mean some work on our part. We trust God to work in people's hearts. And we know that we cannot convert anybody. But we have a mandate to be faithful and share the gospel. And it requires some personal effort on your part. Let me ask you, what what effort are you making? Not out of condemnation. Experience no condemnation. 
You see, for all those in Christ Jesus, no condemnation remains. But he does, at times, prick our consciences. He does want to reorient us to be back on his mission. For me, it looks like being on my homeowners association so I can sit through the, the insane conversations sometimes. And <laughs> so I can be around unbelievers and get to know them because, you know, I'm a pastor and it's really hard for me to be around unbelievers. I don't bump into them a lot in my daily work. I don't get to be around, around a lot of unbelievers. So I try to go to the same places and see the same people and talk to my neighbors. And for some of you, it might look like five or ten of you guys or gals joining a, a non-Christian soccer league or a basketball or rowing or whatever your sport is. If you like hockey or wrestling, God forbid. Um, go and, and join a team. Sorry, that was solely for Mosley's benefit. Um, if you... If it might look like five or ten of you going and joining a team or a club or figuring out strategically, how do I get involved in the lives of unbelievers and reach out to them, get to know them so I can share the gospel with them? For others, it might be asking your server in your restaurant if you can pray for them and then leave them a big tip, by the way. Um, don't leave them a track that has a picture of a $100 bill on it. Um, <laughs> I kind of just encourage you never to leave that no matter what anyway. That's not helpful. They're going to think it's cheesy and they're going to think, I've been ripped off. No matter where you leave that. Somebody's going to be like, hey, $100 bill, look. Uh. I don't think they're going to be like, oh, what's the good news on this? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking that might not be encouragement that it's, oh, it's something less than that. I think I want to read it now. Um, Ask to pray for your server or go to the same places and share the gospel. Leave a big tip so you're not a stumbling block to them. They don't think Christians are stingy. Might look like frequenting the same places, getting to know people, sharing the gospel. Might look like just inviting a neighbor over for dinner so you can get to know people and share them the gospel with them. It might look like inviting a coworker or a college mate to go through a study. Maybe they've been wrestling with some hard things in their life. And you say, hey, you know what? Can we go through a, a study about the Bible? What the Bible says about what you're going through together? And hopefully we're going to get some more resources back on our bookstore. Hey, another infomercial. We're going to get some more resources back on our bookstore to, to hopefully help equip you to, to walk through just simple little studies for people with questions. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Are, you. are you praying for God to bring at least one person that you can share the gospel with? Don't get discouraged if you don't see it happen, though, because it's not up to you. We plant the seeds. God causes the growth. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's what our hope is. I share, I'm going to share the gospel. I know that God's going to be at work because he has all the power and all authority. He can change their hearts. And that's really cool. We can take heart and we can have boldness because here's the last point and as we wrap up in the last few minutes here and that's Jesus said something very critical. See, the Great Commission still hasn't ended. This is, this is a very critical part of the Great Commission. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's good news. He's got all authority. He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. He gives a strategic plan on how to do that. 
And then he promises to be with us on the mission. That's our last point. Jesus promised to be with us on the mission. We're not alone. That's really good news. When you go and share the gospel, you're not just sharing it by yourself. You're not alone. It's not just your words. Somehow, the Holy Spirit that he has sent and is inside of you as a, as a Christian and with you, he's speaking through you and making your words effective. We don't need to fear any person or fear what might happen to us. Jesus, who has all authority, he's with us on the mission. Why would we fear man? Why would we care about what our neighbors think? Jesus has all authority. They don't. He said he'll never leave us or forsake us. Nothing will separate us from his love. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Lamentations, there's a, the prophet Jeremiah. He's, he's weeping over the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem around 600 by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the hope of God's people had been crushed. And why was it crushed? Because they had no means. They had no means for atonement. They had no means for a sacrifice that would remove or cover their sins. And the temple where God's presence was, it was taken away from them. And where they went to encounter God and worship and have their sins atoned for, it was destroyed. And in Lamentations, we see it says, Remember, O Lord. It's a prayer in Lamentations. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans. Fatherless, Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We're given no rest. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. There was no hope for Israel. They had no right to pray the rest of this prayer because in the covenant they'd broken all the promises. They'd broken their deal. And yet they appeal to God's mercy. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Because it's only God who can restore. Renew our days as of old unless... And here's the sad part where lamentation ends. It ends with this very, very sad, bewildered clause. Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. It ends with this open-ended wondering of whether God had utterly rejected them and remained exceedingly angry with them. And at times it may seem if God has forgotten and it may seem hard to see how God's at work in the world in your life. The people of old, they were left to wonder for a long time and they really did have no hope in themselves and even under the covenant because they've been unfaithful and they failed time and time and time and time and time again. They couldn't even make sacrifices in the temple. But the prophet in Lamentations, he appealed to the mercy of God and asked to be restored and renewed. And 600 years later, about 40 years before the destruction of the temple again by the Romans, you see the second temple we heard about in Ezra, it was rebuilt. We have some lamentation going on in the back apparently. So. <laughs> probably my kid um, <laughs> parents we love children don't ever freak out when your kids are screaming it's okay take them out there and that's great and we're all okay with that by the way and 600 years later 40 years before the final destruction of the temple you see the temple still not been rebuilt by the way it was rebuilt 
in the time of the book of Ezra and then it was destroyed about 40 years or so after Jesus. And, but 600 years later, Jesus told his disciples in effect that he was now, he was now the dwelling place of God with men, that he himself was the fulfillment of the temple. He was God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus prophesied he would be killed but on the third day. He would rebuild this temple and he's referring to his own body. Unlike the Jews in the Old Testament, he did not leave his disciples to wonder like those 600 years previously when Lamentation ends with a sad note. They were wondering, would God really restore the inheritance? Would God leave us as orphans? Would God reject us? Would he be exceedingly angry forever? And instead, in, in John 14, 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Amen. <laughs> to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Do you see some of the language back to the Old Testament? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's good news. That's good news for us. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I'm in my Father and you and me and I and you. Not only has Jesus promised to be with us and for his spirit to dwell with us and in us, he's promised that he will answer the prayers of his people completely one day. Isn't that, isn't that exciting? You see, the temple in Jerusalem, it remains destroyed. But we have God with us. We have Emmanuel. And although he's, he's gone to be at the right hand of the Father, he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he promises to one day return and, and restore all things, to renew all things. When Lamentation cries out with this bewildered question, will you renew? Will you restore? Will you redeem? see, they had no hope in the law to come to God. But now, not only is Jesus the way to, father, to the Father, not only is He with us to the end of the age, He's promised us in Revelation 21. And if the, the band could go ahead and come forward as we read this. I'm just going to sing one song in closing. He's promised us in Revelation 21 that He's going to answer that prayer that they prayed in Lamentations. Not only is he with us now, he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's answered the other part of the prayer to, for restoration, for renewal. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, let me go ahead and stand for a moment. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, a rebuilding of Jerusalem. Isn't this cool? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the thirsty. Remember, Lamentations, they had to buy their water. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God And he will be my son. Church, don't we want to tell those about Jesus? Don't we want to tell the people about the glorious mission of Jesus that he's completed and he's given us to carry out to others? Don't we want to have a part in making disciples? What a glorious privilege we've been given. Jesus, who has all authority, he's given us a mission and strategy to carry it out. He's promised to be with us on the mission until he makes all things new and when all of his sons and daughters will be with him face to face don't you want to be a part of that amen let's worship